0: All right, before we get started, I want to read this passage. Uh, this is from Acts chapter 2. And, and just to let you know, uh, when we take a break, we'll take a break for the rest of the holidays through the end of the year. We'll come back um, in, I think it's the second week or the third week, I'll, you'll get an email, but of January, and we're going to do the book of Acts. And the reason we're going to do the book of Acts is because we, this whole Reformation thing has been, how did the church get so screwed up? that it needed a reformation. So we're going to go backwards and go, how did the church start? And so we're going to look at the book of Acts. It should be a really fun study, a a pretty fascinating study on how the church started and then where it went, how fast it grew. And we're going to kind of connect the dots, but we're going to go backwards. And we're going to go all the way back to to Pentecost. So that's going to be our study. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. This starts in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So you see the early days of the church, we've spent the last nine weeks looking at the reformation, the, you know, 15, 17, throughout the 16th century. And, um, things are different. 1500 years or so later, things are different. They're, they're struggling. And so that's kind of what we want to talk about this morning when it comes to the church, the state of affairs, during the 16th century. And we've spent a lot of time comparing the Reformers and and the Catholics, and um, they didn't like one another. Uh, There was a lot of animosity, and we know that Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon and all these guys, Bucer, and all the the other Reformers who came along, really struggled with the Catholic Church. And so it would be really easy to boil this down into, it's just the Reformers against the Catholics. And it was, but as we saw last week, it's very quickly becoming the reformers against the reformers. Matter of fact, here's just a list and in, in, in it shows how quickly this happens. 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses. So by the 1520s, you already have Lutheran churches. Luther did not intend to start a Lutheran denomination. And it really bugged him that there even were churches that claimed the name of Lutheran, but they were there by the 1520s. Anglicans formed in the 1530s. Reformed churches who went under that moniker showed up by the 1550s. Anabaptists, 1550s. Presbyterians by the 1560s. And Baptists show up in the 1600s. So here, by the start of the 17th century, You've already got all these groups and there were others, but they were less formalized and, and, um, less organized, but you, you already had the splintering of the reformation. Well, along with that comes the whole idea of what is the church? And up until this time, the church had always been what the Catholic church. They were the only show in town. They were the 800-pound gorilla in the room. They were the show. And now you're beginning to have all these other groups show up who are saying that we're the church. We make up the church. Well, everybody had a different definition of the church, and that's kind of where we're going to head this morning. And I, I, I label this lesson, why do we go to church? What's the purpose? And it's interesting that we live in a society right now where Going to church is becoming less and less a norm. Um, And so I've I've been reading this book just the last few weeks, and it's all, uh, uh, Charles Taylor wrote a book called Our Secular Age, and he's a Catholic um, philosopher, thinker, and he wrote this book a number of years ago, and this book is written uh, in response to it. And this one, one thought jumped out at me, and it's talking about our current age that we live in. It says, "'Because no church is ever going to perfectly, uh, be perfectly tailored to my preference, preferences and the subtle, subtler languages I find meaningful, something will always make me bristle, something will leave me feeling unseen, unheard, uncomfortable, just as we eventually grow tired of the trendy restaurant or favorite clothing brand because our tastes inevitably change.'" So we will eventually tire of a church that initially connects with our unique spiritual path, but then fails to sufficiently track with our evolving beliefs. That's the world we live in, guys. It's You see people who are vacating the premises. They're choosing not to go to church. I don't need to go to church. Uh, I don't need the organized church. I can have church on my own. Um, I wrestle with that. I struggle with that. And... That splintering of the church that took place in the 1500s and the early 1600s is, is still taking place. We have people today who don't think they need the church, that the church is them. And the church is them, but the problem with that idea is that as far as I can tell reading the New Testament, the church is us. It doesn't mean this building, it doesn't mean a particular denomination, but it does mean the gathered body of Christ. And so these are the things that the reformers were going to wrestle with as they thought about, what are we going to do? We're leaving the Catholic church, well, what are we going to have? What's it going to look like? What is the church? Well, we know this, in the 16th century, there was no truly systematic theology of the church. There was no ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just the study of the church. There was no systematic theology to speak of. They had their beliefs, but they really weren't written down in any way. And the church by, by the mid 1500s was this organized institution that was headed up by the Pope. Uh, that was the church. That was the definition of the church. But there was no real written theology regarding the church because they were the only show. There was no competition. Well, that quickly changed as we've seen. And if you go all the way back to the Nicene Creed, which we've looked at before, which is an orthodox statement of faith, came out in 325 AD. This is what it said. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This was early on before the Catholic church was the force it ended up becoming And when we read this, it has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church, okay? The word Catholic in this statement has nothing to do with Rome. It has nothing to do with the Pope. This is what was meant. And I wanna look at these three statements. One holy, okay, one holy church. That simply means it is sacred and set apart. Set apart for who? God. God created the church. He created the church for him. It's a set apart group of people who belong to him. That's us. And it's not just us who happen to go to Christ Chapel. We have men who come to this Bible study who don't go to Christ Chapel. Guess what? We're part of the same body of Christ they are. They may go to a different church at a different location, but we're all part of the church. And this is kind of what what starts coming out of the reformers is, well, is the church the church? Global, universal, is the church where I happen to sit in a pew and worship? Well, yes, it's both. But they really struggled with that. What is the church? Well, it's sacred. It's set apart. And there's only one. So this is not the church. It's part of the church. We are all part of the church. There are other churches. And it wasn't referring to a place. We tend to think place. Where do you go to church? Well, I go to Christ' Chapel. I go to Wedgwood, I go to this, I go to that. It's a place. Nothing wrong with that. But the reformers would wrestle with that because it it was more than that. And there was something mysterious about this thing called the Church. It's Catholic. Again, that doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means it's universal in nature. It it crosses time and space. It's not relegated to a time or a space. There are people, the reformers would even say that those who are already in heaven are still part of the church. They're believers. They're still part of the church. The church is not bound by time. It's not bound by space. That's why if you go on a, a mission trip and every year when we go to Brazil, we worship like this last year, this year we went and worshiped on Sunday night and they had a church service, didn't understand a thing they said, um, understood a lot of the songs, but I didn't understand the words. I couldn't, I couldn't sing with them. So I, I was singing the songs in English while they sang in Portuguese, but I worshiped. Why? Because they believe in the same God that I believe in. They have a relationship with Christ just like I do. So it's not relegated to time or space. <laughs> and it's apostolic. That just simply refers to its historic in nature. It goes all the way back to the apostles with the, just like we read in Acts chapter three, the beginning of the church, the apostolic beginning of the church as it grew and spread through the apostles. So it's got this link. It didn't start today. When we launched Christ Chapel 36 years ago, that was not the beginning of the church. That was the formation of this local fellowship. But the church goes all the way back to the apostles. Ephesians 2, 20 through 21 says, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. That is what we are. That is who we are. So the reformers are wrestling with this, they're going back and reading these passages and they're beginning to wrestle with who are we? We're not part of the Catholic Church anymore, we've parted ways from them, so what are we? What are we gonna look like? How are we gonna form? In First Timothy 3, it says, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon so that if I am delayed, Paul says to Timothy, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And we're going to come back to this in just a few minutes. So Paul's writing to his disciple Timothy, and he's telling them that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Well, which church? This church? Yes. The church down the street? Should be. It's, it's really the church, the, the church that believes in Jesus Christ, the church made up of all those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ should be the pillar and foundation of the truth. But what we, what we have today is a lot of cases where that's not true. And if you think about it, if you're a lost person in this community or in this, this context of the 21st century, the church is the most confusing thing in the world to figure out. Because I go to this church this week, maybe I visit another church next week from a different denomination. They do it differently. They speak differently. They worship differently. The music's different. The hymnals are different. The pastor preaches differently. And what is the church? What's the truth? And this was even happening in the 1500s as these different splinter groups began to form and wrestle over what is the gospel. The Catholic church had their version of the gospel. Well, you're going to have Anabaptists and you're gonna have Baptists and you're gonna have Lutherans and Anglicans. And it doesn't take long before they even start playing around with what is that? What's the gospel? What's the truth? What's the foundation? What's the pillar? So by the middle ages, and I'm not gonna, I don't wanna bore you to death with this, but I think it's really important for us to understand that this was going on long before the Reformation even started. There were arguments about what is the church before the reformers. Even before he picked up a hammer to nail the theses to the door, this was a problem. So you had these five different competing models for the church. The first one is curialism. All that simply means is the Pope, and we'll look at that. There's conciliarism. There's anti-clericalism. There's spiritualism. And there's primitivism. Okay? What are they? Real quickly, curialism is the Pope. This was the main program. The church was the institution. The Pope was in charge. It was running the show. So Curialism was a theory of church government that invested supreme authority, both temporal and spiritual, into the hands of the papacy, the Pope. That was the main means of defining and looking at the church because the Roman Catholic Church was in control of all things. But there were other groups that came along, and we'll see. So even Pope Boniface in um, 1302 says, we declare state define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. So what's their definition of the church? The church is the Pope and everything that comes under his umbrella, the, the sacraments, the bishops, the cardinals, the monks, the priests, the prelates, all of these are necessary for what's salvation. This is the means of salvation, but the Reformation would come along and change that, or at least speak against that. Well, before the Reformation, you had conciliarism. What's that? This showed up. Remember when we talked about the papal schism, where you ended up with three popes, two in France, one in Rome, and they're all claiming to be the Pope, the, the vicar of Christ on earth, and they can't agree. they're all calling the other a, her- a heretic. Well, what happens is the cardinals and the bishops decide, well none of these guys are the Pope. We're in charge. And they decided councils of bishops were going to be in charge. So it arose out of the crisis of the papal schism and they affirmed the superiority of ecumenical councils over the Pope in the governance and reform of the church. So they said, if these three idiots can't decide who's in charge, we'll be in charge. And they fired them all and none would resign. And it was just this mess and it didn't take long before when they got it back down to one Pope, he got rid of the councils and said, no, I'm in charge, no councils. So you had, that's why Luther said, even the Pope and the councils can't agree. Why should I give them authority over scripture? But conciliarism was a huge issue. Anti-clericalism shows up. And this came from basically John Wycliffe, uh, Wycliffe who Ted preached about in one of his sermons and then Jan Hus. This was, it didn't it didn't directly come from these guys, but they influenced it. And it's basically this idea of hating the clerical system, the popes, the priests, the bishops, the the monks, the abbots, all of this stuff, this formation in, in this incredibly complex institution that the church had become. And this branch would basically say, we're against that. That's not the church. We struggle with that. And they believed the definition of the church was the predestined body of the elect. Why is that even important? Well, if you think about it, what they concluded was, we don't know who the elect are. Okay, that's, that's their mindset. Calvin and others would come down this path and they would say, well, we don't know who the elect are. That's why we share the gospel because we don't know who they are and they need to hear the gospel. Well, they would say, If you're a pope, a priest, a bishop, a cleric of any kind within this institution of the church, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. And they had enough evidence by the time Luther came along that he even questioned whether the pope was a Christian. He called him the Antichrist because they didn't live like Christians. So just because you have this title doesn't mean you're necessarily a Christian. doesn't mean you're part of the elect. So they were anti-clerical. They were anti-hierarchical So what came out of this group was the idea of the invisible church, the elect. You walk through the community today, you go to work, and there are people who are part of the elect. There are people who are part of the invisible church. You may not know who they are. You may not be able to recognize them. That's the way they viewed the church. But they also saw that there was a visible church, this Us gathered together. Now, what's really interesting to this, and I'm still really kind of wrestling with what I believe about this, but they would say that within the visible church that you can see, like when we gather together on Sunday, there are wheat and tares. There are people there who claim to be Christian who aren't Christian. And the only time we're ever going to find out who they really are is at the judgment seat. When God decides, yeah, you really are a believer, you're really not. Well, where I wrestle with it is, is that really the church? That's why we have to be, I think, really careful on a Sunday morning when we stand up and we teach and preach to the people gathered that we assume and speak as if everybody is part of the family of God. Because guess what? They're not. There are lost people in that room. There are people who think they're saved who aren't saved. There are people who think they're part of the kingdom because they were christened or dipped or dunked or did whatever they did, and they don't have a relationship with Christ. And so well, what the reformers wrestled with is, is that the church? Well, they would call it the visible church. It's the church gathered. They think they're part of the church, but they're not really saved. And this would begin to percolate within all the reformers the idea of the visible and the invisible church, which is which, what is it? Well, in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, I want to read this to you. Jesus puts another parable before them, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, "'Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have weeds?' He said to them, an enemy's done this. So the servant said, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what the reformers did is they read this passage and they began to say, that's the church. You got wheat, you got tares. Others would come along and say, and this is where I would probably land, is this is talking about the world. That in the world, there are wheat and tares. I'm not gonna fall on my sword over that. And I can see where the reformers landed on that, that we do have within the gathered church, wheat and tares, lost and saved. Those who think they're saved or not, those who are saved. But this, this was really influential on how they viewed the church, that you had these people who thought they were part of the church and who really wouldn't. And so what they decided was you could be in the church without being of the church. So that's that idea of visible, invisible. You're part of the visible church. So if you, if you meet somebody and say, where do you go to church? And they say, I go to Christ Chapel. Your automatic assumption may be that, well, you must be a Christian. Probably a bad assumption. Just because they go to church doesn't mean they're in the church or of the church. And and that's something we, I think we have to wrestle with guys is that when you meet guys at church or you have friends who go to church or you talk to them and they go to this church or that church and they're part of this denomination or another denomination, do not assume that they're believers because they may not be part of the invisible church. They may not really have a relationship with Christ. And the truth is, all across this city, all across this country, all across the world, there are many millions of people who go to church, but are not part of the church, the invisible church. They don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that ought to be our first and foremost concern. Do you know Christ? I really don't care where you go to church. Are you part of the church? Do you have a relationship with him? And too often we're just satisfied with, oh, great, you go to church. Well, what kind of church? What do they teach at that church? And we'll talk about that. Well, there's spiritualism. This developed from uh, basically the influence of St. Francis of Assisi and the Franciscans. And this held out the ideal of the church of the future, the church of the soon coming third age of the spirit. Now, this gets so complex, it makes my head hurt but this came from a guy named Joachim of Fiore. Okay. Don't recommend you go read a whole lot about him. He was kind of interesting guy, but he uh, divided history into three basic parts. There's the age of the father, the age of the son, the age of the spirit. I'm not going to try to unpack those cause I don't understand it, but he developed this theory and it began to influence the church even before the reformation. And one of the ones that he camped on was the age of the spirit. The dawn of this age, the age of the spirit would be heralded by the coming of a new order of barefoot spiritual men who would oppose the false hierarchy of the church, the Roman church, and prepare the day for a millennium of peace that would continue until the last judgment. So you had out of this Franciscan movement, you had these spiritualists who uh, became very influential. And we saw when we talked about the Holy Spirit, they influenced the movement within the reformation of spiritualism. Hey, I got the spirit. Why do I need the Bible? They were, the writers of the scriptures were influenced by the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm influenced by the Holy Spirit, so I don't need to hear what he told them. I need to hear what he has to say to me. It's an idea of spiritualism. I don't need the church. I don't need hierarchy. And it would become a big issue within even the Reformation. And then finally, you got primitivism. This sounds kind of odd. It sounds kind of old-fashioned. And it is, because basically what it is, it's a throwback to the way it used to be. Remember the good old days? The older you get, the more you live or you want to live in the good old days. The problem is it's your memory. The good old days weren't as good as you thought they were. So the Waldensians and others would come up with this idea of longing for the good old days, and they titled it Ecclesia Primitiva. Their view of the church was characterized by a strong perfectionist tendency, anti sacerdotal which is basically they didn't like priests and priesthood, and they were separatists. All that means is that they wanted to go back to the way the church used to be. So they would read Acts, for instance, and they would want to be like the church of Acts. And so that passage I read at the very beginning, they wanted to share all things in common. They wanted a communal life. They wanted to be simplistic. They didn't want hierarchy. They didn't feel the need for priests and pastors and priests. We're all priests. And so you had this primitivism, going back to the way things used to be. So this was before the reformers ever began. So you had five different groups and there were probably more, but five essential groups who were battling over control of the church and their views were all over the map. And then the reformation comes along and it's going to get even more confusing and more muddy because they're going to take all of that and they're going to add to it their views of the scriptures, their understanding of what the church was. And there would be common ground and there's going to be areas of great division that we see take place within the church the Reformation in particular. So real quickly, I wanna look at Luther's ecclesiology, his view on the church. And this is a really fast overview, guys. And I, I really encourage you to keep reading about the Reformation, keep reading about these guys. But Luther said this, holy believer, the church is holy believers and sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. That's his basic definition of the church, very simplistic. What is the church? Holy believers and sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. So you've got to hear his voice, you've got to know his voice, Jesus Christ. You've got to be able to understand the call and the relationship. And so that was his definition. He put a huge priority on the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, because what he had discovered in the Reformation was the gospel that had been lost in the years prior to that. So the gospel was important. The church was essentially spiritual and non-institutional. He rejected a lot of the hierarchy and structure. He still kept it. If you look at a Lutheran church, there's a lot of similarities even today to Catholicism. So they didn't jettison all of it, but he really wanted to go more to the spiritual elements within the church. The true church was the people of God. He calls it the communio sanctorum, this true church. Again, it's the idea of what's the true church. It's not necessarily everybody who comes on Sunday morning to Christ Chapel or any other church. It's the ones who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the true church. So you can go to any fellowship. Luther could go to any fellowship and know that within that fellowship of people gathered, there are people who are not part of the true church. And we need to understand that. When Ted preaches, when I speak, when any pastor gets up to speak, he needs to understand that within the audience, regardless of the day, there are lost people in that room. There are deceived people. I remember one time I was teaching a Sunday school class, and this, um, this guy who I didn't know was in the back of the room, and he held up his hand, and he goes, Hey, wait a minute. He goes, I disagree. I'm like, What, what, do, you, what do you disagree with? I didn't ask for questions. you know. And he says, I disagree. And I said, well, Okay, well, what? And to this day, I don't even remember what I was teaching on. And he goes, you just assume everybody in this room is a Christian. I said, well, I, I don't think I assume that. And he goes, well, you talk like they're all Christians. And this guy was obviously from the Northeast because of his accent and he was a little gruff. And uh, I grew up in the Northeast, I, I recognize it. And he, he I said, well, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to, if I did, I'm sorry. And he I said, he said, well, you need to make sure they understand the gospel, define the gospel. Well, my brain's fried at this moment. I'm like, I don't even think I can, I don't know what the gospel is. I I said, well, you define it. Jerk. You know, (laughs) I didn't say that out loud, but I thought it. And and he, he gave this incredible definition of the gospel. And I said, man, couldn't have said it better myself. But he reminded me to never assume that everybody understands. And that's what Luther and all these guys are really beginning to see is that they knew within the Catholic church because everybody's baptized into the Catholic church and a member of the church doesn't mean that everybody's in the true church. And when you walk through these hallways or the hallways of your church, my dad, one of the things I loved about my dad when he was alive is that he could not walk into a room and not see two groups of people, saved or unsaved. And here was his goal, to find out which you were. So he met people to find out, do you know Jesus? And if you knew Jesus, great, he moved on to the next person. He really didn't want to know you, he just wanted to know who you knew. Uh, My dad was a soul winner, that's what drove everything about him. So Luther spoke of the church as both invisible and hidden, and he accentuated the priesthood of the believer, which is a huge issue in that day, if you think about the Catholic church. Because they had the priesthood. And the priesthood was huge in the Catholic church. Remember, you couldn't take the sacraments without the priesthood. Now, here comes Luther saying, no, we're all priests. And this would influence others. How about Zwingli? Well, Z- Zwingli's a contemporary of Luther. And it, he said, all who dwell in the head are members, the head being Christ, and children of God. And that is the church or communion of the saints, the bride of Christ, Ecclesia Catholica. That was his definition of the church. We all have a relationship with the head, Jesus Christ. We've placed our faith in him. And one of the things about Zwingli, and Calvin was the same way, is they wanted to keep church and state together. They both lived in communities where church and state were attached at the hip. Uh, Government and church were really integral. Guys, we don't live in that world anymore, right? We don't have that. We... We can long for it, but I don't think it's ever going to come. And I don't know that it was ever intended to be that way. I don't know that we were ever intended to have a theocracy. We're to be the church. And I think from the scriptures, the government has its role and we have our role. And when we start trying to do both, when, I, when the church starts trying to be the government, we step out of our God-given bounds. When the government starts trying to be the church, it steps out of its God-given bounds. We, we need to hold the church, I mean, the government accountable But in this day, Zwingli would try to keep the two tied together. And one of the interesting things he believed is that salvation was not the sole purview of the church. The Catholics and even Luther would say, you can't come to salvation without the church. Zwingli would say, no, God's bigger than that. You don't need the church. You can come to faith without the church. And this would become a huge point of debate between Zwingli and Luther. And, and Zwingli in particular really hated rituals and rites. This is where the iconoclastic movement came in, where they began to go in and tear out all the altarpieces and they would get rid of the, um, any kind of paintings and they got rid of the music and they, they just said, we're not going to have anything to do with anything that looks Catholic. Icons, images, got rid of them. So you see a a change coming in terms of how they view church. I love this from Timothy George in his book, Theology of the Reformers. Wingley was much more radical than Luther in trying to prune from the church life those ceremonial rites and religious accoutrements that were the mainstay of medieval piety thoughtless prayers, prescribed fast, the bleached cows, carefully shaved heads of the monks, holy days, incense, the burning of candles, the sprinkling of holy waters, nuns, prayers, priests, chatter, vigils, masses, and matins This whole rubbish heap of ceremonials amounted to nothing but tomfoolery. To depend upon them at all for salvation was like placing ice blocks upon ice blocks. They're all gonna melt. Now, Zwingli didn't mince words. He was a lot like Luther. He did not believe in rituals. He did not believe in ceremony. Here comes Calvin. Amongst the greatest evils of our century must be counted the fact that the churches are so divided one from another and that there is scarcely even a human relationship between us. Man, would he love things today. Division. He hated the division. He longed for a unified church. He longed for a unified Christian society. That's why he worked so hard in Geneva to build a Christian society. He wanted a Christian government. He wanted a Christian church. He wanted the two to work together to change the world so that we would be one. And it grieved him that there was so much division. Why? Because he was a churchman. He loved the church. He put a high stock on worship. He put a high stock on biblical study. He was a teacher at his core, teaching the word of God, catechisms, Bible studies. He wanted people to know the word of God. And he, like Luther and Zwingli, and most of the reformers, believed that the scriptures bore the church, not the other way around. Whereas the Catholic church would say, no, we bore the scriptures. We're the ones who compiled it. We're the ones who decided what the books would be. The reformers would say, no, it's the other way around. And he would say that sanctification, growth in Christ likeness, is dependent upon and requires the congregation. And the older I've gotten, the more I realize how much I believe this you will never grow outside of the context of the body of christ you really won't you may grow more knowledgeable like if if you went home today and decided i'm going to just sit in my study my my den and i'm just going to do nothing but read the scriptures but i'm never going to leave my house you would become incredibly intelligent when it comes to scripture, but you would have no understanding of the spiritual gifts. You would have no understanding of body life. You wouldn't have, in other words, what good are spiritual gifts so you don't use them within the context of the body? What good is the gift of teaching if you never have anybody to teach? What, what good is mercy if you have no one to show mercy to? I can tell you I'm a patient man, but when does the truth of that statement show up? when I get around you, when I get around others, suddenly I realize I'm not a patient person because somebody came into my life who tested what? My patience. See, this idea of just education is not enough. We don't grow in isolation. We grow in unity. He believed the visible church is a corpus permixtum, which is basically, again, wheat and tares gathered together. The visible church is this amalgam of lost people and saved people, and we got to do the, our job, our due diligence to make sure we know which is which and who is who. And to a certain degree, the reformers like Calvin would say, the only way it's ever going to get cleared up is at the end. We as a church believe in the rapture. Uh, we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to take the church. And there's going to be a few people sitting there watching as everybody leaves who thought they were going to go. I joke about this sometimes where, you know, um, You'll have a meeting and not everybody shows up and I'll say, well, gosh, it must be the rapture <laughs> and, and, and they, they left and we're here. Oops. That's going to happen. There are going to be some who go and some who stay, and that's going to be a, a real clear, indi- clear indication that there are some who never were part of the invisible church. The last guy I want to look at is Mino Simmons. Out of him come the Mennonites. He's a contemporary of all these guys. He says, those who are one with Christ in spirit, love, and life, who teach that which is commanded by Christ, such as repentance and the peaceable gospel of grace, which he himself received of God and taught to the world, all those who hear, believe, keep, and fulfill the same and true fear are the church of Christ, the truly believing Christian church. Now, Menno Simmons was gonna take this thing to a deeper level. He was gonna really kind of bow up against visible, invisible church. And he would believe that you can know and you should know who's in the church. And so you're going to see the Mennonites and the Amish and others come out of this who believe that the visible church is recognizable, should be recognizable, and should be separate and apart. The church was dedicated in terms of his mindset to doctrine, true doctrine. And you had to believe it and you had to live it. Marked by obedience to the word of God. And he did not buy into corpus permixtum. Wheat and tares. If anything, that was wrong. That should not be the case. We should be able to see. So he said, they verily are not the true congregation of Christ who merely boast of his name, but they are the true congregation of Christ who are truly converted, who are born from God above of God, who are of a regenerate mind by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the hearing of the divine word and have become children of God, have entered into obedience to him and live unblameably in his holy commandments and according to his holy will with all their days or from the moment of their call. Now, can you see where this is going to go? They are incredibly strict. They're incredibly detailed and they're incredibly big on discipline, church discipline. And they would have what they called the ban. And if you did not live according to the scriptures, if you did not live according to this statement, then you were banned from the fellowship. You were kicked out of the community of faith. They did not believe in the mixing of wheat and tares. And their goal in life was to make sure you were wheat and not tares. Because to let the tares in would be to to diminish the power and efficacy of the church. Okay, so what do we do with all this? Why is this important? What does it have to do with you and I living in the 21st century in the United States? Everything. If you look at all these guys and you boil down everything they said to its basic, the church equals the gospel. What had happened in the Catholic Church was the gospel had been diminished. Not that they didn't want people to be saved, but it's how you get saved. They had clouded it. They had muddied the water. And so for the reformers, they wanted to get back to the gospel, and the gospel was what dictated the church. Martin Luther said this, The sure mark by which the Christian congregation can be recognized is that the pure gospel is preached there. Where the gospel is absent and human teachings rule, there no Christians live but only pagans, no matter how numerous they are and how holy and upright their life may be. I love that definition. You could take that definition, you could go from church to church in this community, and you over a period of time, give it time, don't go one Sunday, but listen to what they teach and preach. If the gospel over a month period of time, you do not hear the gospel, Luther would say that's not a church. That's a gathering of people, but that's not the church because. What The most vital thing to the church is the gospel, and it's not there. And it's it may be human teachings, it may be good life, it may be social programs, but it's not the gospel. And it should not be a church, at least from a biblical standpoint. John Calvin said, Wherever we see the word of God preached purely and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So if the word of God is preached and communion is taken and baptisms are are enacted, then that is a church. If those things don't exist, especially the word of God being preached, it's not a church. If all you get is a really kind of upbeat message about how great you are and how to influence the world and how to live a better life, but the word of God's not preached and sin's not expressed and forgiveness of sins is not offered through salvation in Jesus Christ, that is not a church. See, that definition, guys, has been lost. That's why we have so many groups today who claim to be a church and they're not, because they don't preach the Word of God. They don't preach the gospel. Secondly, a church is a gathering. I believe in the invisible church. Yes, there is an invisible church. There are people all over this planet who are believers in Christ who I will never meet and never see, and we're all part of the body of Christ, but I most definitely believe in the local church. It's huge. There is the Universal Invisible Church, but there's this local gathering of believers, guys, that we need to put a higher priority on. I was talking to Matt this morning and um, who works for me, and, and uh, he's part of the millennial generation. And, and one of the things I see happening in the millennial generation and everything I've read about them is that they are leaving the church because of a lot of reasons, but some of it is driven by their independence that I don't need a church, an organization, an institution to tell me what I believe. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And so there's this movement away from the church. And yet I think they need the church more than ever because of the confusion out there and how much we need the body of Christ. Membership is in both the visible and invisible church. This idea that, yes, I'm part of the invisible church, so why do I need this? It's true, but guys, we need one another more than we can ever imagine. I need you in my life. I can't do this thing without you. I need your input. I need your accountability. I need you to pray for me. I need you to encourage me, admonish me. That's what the one another's are all about in the New Testament. John Calvin said, the church is the gathering of God's children where they can be helped, fed like babies, and then guided by her motherly care and grow up to manhood and maturity of faith. That is my life mission. I want to see you and I want to see me grow up. Grow up. I'm not an evangelist. I I, I need to share my faith, but what I am is I want to take guys who already know Christ and help them grow in Christ because I know how important it is. And you don't do that apart from the church. So is the church important today? Well, let's look at Scripture. 1 Timothy 3.15, we read it earlier. It is the pillar and buttress of the truth, the church. See, if it's just invisible, how does that happen? It's when we come together and we live out all the doctrines we say we believe in community that we illustrate what the church really is and that the gospel really is true. See, the fact that we can come together with all of our diversity and get along and love one another, that is a sign that the gospel really works. It really is true. That's why in Hebrews it says, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. It's getting closer to the end. We can feel it. We can sense it just as they could but we need to encourage one another. How do you encourage one another if you never get together? It's why we have you sit at tables. It's why we ask you to talk. It's why we ask you to interface so that you can encourage one another. We have a purpose given to us by God. And I love this passage, Ephesians 4. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their responsibility, my responsibility, is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And listen to what he says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. How long am I supposed to do this till I die? There is no retirement. How long are you supposed to do your job to build up the body of Christ and to do the work of God till he calls you home? We have work to do. We have a job to do, and it's been given to us by God. And here's just a few. We are to be salt and light. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to be witnesses. We are to be pillars of the truth. We are to be the temple of God. We are to be God's coworkers, and we are to bring glory to God. Do you notice that it specifically says we? See, the problem in the church today, guys, is that we've become too individualistic. It's me. I grew up in a context back in the 60s where it was, it's you and Jesus, me and Jesus. I got Jesus, that's all I need. No, you need the church. He saved you and He placed you within the body of Christ for a reason. He gifted you to minister to the body of Christ. That's why it's we are, we are, we are, we are, not I am, it's us. We do it together. Martin Luther said, let him who wants a true church cling to the word by which everything is upheld. So what are the marks? Universality. We are part of this global church, universal church, but we are also to live in community. That's what this is all about. And we're to share in common. What do we share in common? That doesn't mean you sell all your goods and you give them to me. I'd love if you would do that. Um, Give me everything you got. But it means to live in unity of faith and live like a family. So when one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one cries, we all cry. We care for one another. We meet one another's needs. We're to be sanctified, holy, set apart. We should be different than the world around us. We should have orthodoxy. We should have right beliefs. We should know what we believe. That's why we're doing this whole thing, guys. I want you to know why you believe what you believe. But more important than that is orthopraxy, right actions. It doesn't matter what you believe if it doesn't affect your life. You can tell me I believe the Bible is true, but if you never read it, it doesn't matter. You can tell me you believe in Jesus Christ, but if you don't live a life that emulates the life of Christ, it doesn't matter. So you can't have orthodoxy without orthopraxy, right behavior. So finally... Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, Paul says, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. And to who? Unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, it's interesting that here Paul is saying... God wants to display his infinite wisdom in this. Who's he displaying it to? Unseen rulers, Satan himself, the powers that are against us to show that this works and the gates of hell will not stand against this if we do it right, if we do it according to the will of God and the word of God. So here's your questions. What do you think would happen if Christ Chapel or any church began to minimize the gospel in their preaching and teaching? you may have a personal story where the church you came from before you came here had stopped preaching the gospel. What happens when you do that? Why do you think the new Testament writers put so much emphasis on the local church? Why isn't it enough to just be part of the universal church? Well, I worship at home. I worship on the golf course. Why does that not work? Why would it be important to recognize and remember the difference between the church being the people of God and not the place where the people of God meet? This is not the church. Why is that important to remember? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. I pray you would bless the time around the tables. Open their lips, open their hearts, open their minds, help them to see, to share, to talk, and to be encouragement to one another. That, Father, we are the church. We are your people. And if there's anybody, Father, in this room who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who has never placed their faith in Christ, I, I pray that you would open their eyes and help them to understand that it's not coming to this building that makes them a believer. It's coming to faith in your son that makes him a believer and a part of the body of Christ. And may that happen this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.